This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. Hello, it's Lols here. This guest is Salvatore Malatesta, self-described disruptive entrepreneur. If you're a Melbourneite, you'll know him as the coffee king. He set up and created St Ali, this awesome cafe in South Melbs, about 15 years ago. His first year at uni, he opened a cafe only 21 years old, and by the time he finished his degree as a lawyer, mind you, he had opened 15 cafes. So you can imagine he's a bit of a go-getter or a huge go-getter. He's been my business mentor for years and business partner in Happy Place, the smoothie bar. And for years, he's been imparting these little pearls of wisdom with me, and I'm really pumped to be sharing these gems and little nuggets with you. So enjoy good old Sal. I'm so excited to have this person here and I think it's because over the years, because we've known each other for yonks, you've kind of been a bit of a mentor to me. So this is the incredible cell of St. Ali is probably the best way that people would know you. And my boyfriend tells me that your last name means headache, Malatesta, yeah. is that it, right? It does, Lola. Thanks for having me <laughs> on your show and uh, and I'm, you know, love you very much and love being here. It's an honour. Uh, it's funny because when I went at school, my first name, as you know, Salvatore means saviour. Yes. And my surname, Malatesta, means headache. And so the joke around my friends when I was in my teens, they used to call me Panadol. Save the bat, save the headache, save the bad head. So I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So for people that don't know you, you're obviously like in the Melbourne coffee scene. You are the king of coffee, but more than that, you are a famed entrepreneur. That's probably one of the best. Way- and and the the way that I've heard you describe yourself that I love is a disruptive entrepreneur. Uh, so I guess if. Uh- if I was to be, you know, mindful in the response, uh, most people associate me as the guy who owns or um, runs or you know is the Mister Saint Ali, mm. and so in that. Um, yes, you don't need to be mindful here. You just say whatever you want. <laughs> so no, so in that in that realm, I've been discovered. I've been described as everything from Czar, Coffee King, you know, um, spiritual leader, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's lovely because Saint Ali really has. Uh, been instrumental to the life that I have today and for that I'm grateful and thankful. But I um, have been entrepreneurial forever. Yes, this is what I'm really excited about because I went down the rabbit hole of Googling, researching you. First of all, do you know when you Google your name, the first two things that come up in Google predictions? Oh, God, what is it? So the first one is wife and the second one is net value. Oh, excellent. So when, so, when, I- <laughs> so when, is, is it the current wife? <laughs> well, I, I'm hoping so. The wonderful okay. Joanne. Yeah, good. So, <laughs> so well, that's interesting. Um, and I hope the net wealth represents me fairly. Uh, um. <laughs> I didn't click. I was just like, I, I told my boyfriend, I was like, guess what? And he's like, it's you. It's perfect because so many people are intrigued by you because you are such a go getter. So, for those people that 
don't know you, they will have, they will know Saint Ali. They have definitely sipped on your coffee, mm-hmm. like Sensory Lab. So. What else have we got? Auction rooms back at like Cle- last Clement year. Auction Rooms, Sensory Lab, Saint Ali. Um, you mean, were a co-owner in Happy Place when we Happy had Place, Happy yeah, Place. That was fun. Bar. Yeah, no, over the years since 1993, I've either been directly involved or as an investor in over 80. food and beverage venues Uh, and some of them were short-lived, some were long-lived, some were, you know, strategic plays, Uh, but my love really is coffee. Uh, So I've heard at any one time you can have 15 things happening at once, like business-wise. All the time. In fact, where where I feel very blessed these days is we've got a solid team of grown-ups running the Mm. operations, so we're looking at things all the time. I mean, you may have noticed, in fact, I think you're wearing one of our uh, one of our apparels. Uh, we used to use the word merch, but we've moved from merch to apparel because it's a proper range. In fact, we've got a museum piece coming out in three weeks, which is a Japanese cotton, um, you know, dyed locally here in Brunswick and made in Collingwood, and it's a worker's baker's jacket, which is quite hot. Awesome. Um, and I, the vision is that within a year or so, we're you know we're showing at the fashion shows. So, a hundred percent, but also. You've and by the way, my daughter's just walked into the room. Yeah. So you'll probably hear her and she's uh, reaching out wondering why I'm talking into a, a, a metal There's tube. Big blueies, big she's, blue eyes. She's good. <laughs> she's the cutest thing ever. In fact, I was saying to you, I've got a friend on Insta, well, a friend, Bill, if he listens to this, we send each other photos of Cleo to oh, each Billy, other. Oh, Billy, yeah. Billy, biz off. Because we, we think it's, she's the cutest kid in the world. Oh, um, I, love, I love Billy, he's good. So just quickly on the fashion apparel really quickly and then we'll rewind a little bit. You have a creative team of five people currently, right, that does all of this fashion apparel stuff. Correct. So so forever and ever and ever, even early, early days, I mean I'm talking early days when I was 19 and we were stringing, you know, um, putting together s- stores on shoestring budgets literally, you know, so it was either borrowed furniture, stolen furniture or, you know. <laughs> Um, we always had as a member of the team at my request someone who was a creative and whether they were, uh, you know, a graphic designer, an artist, a photographer, I needed to bounce ideas off someone uh, all the time for fulfilling my kind of emotional needs, I guess. And um, as we got bigger, I invested more and more in our creative team. And so for a coffee company, we have five full-time creative mm. guys, which is Probably insane. But I they, go into their office like once a week because yeah. I also work with Taters, yeah. who's one of your guys. But would you say if you've had a creative team to fulfil that part of, I'm going to say your heart, Yeah. would you say that there's a, although you are business, business, entrepreneur and a bit of a go-getter and got that kind of bulldog drive, I hope you don't you don't. No, not at all, that, yeah. Would you say that you have like a sensitive creative side as well? Sure, but you know what's interesting, that even the way that question's framed, and I'm, I'm hope you're happy for me to have a go at you about it. Go I don't. I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive. See, we've got this view in this country that entrepreneurs are sort of, you know, bulldoggy and aggressive and you know numbers driven, but generally, good entrepreneurs are creative because they're looking for uh, they look they're either creating. Uh, a product which satisfies a need that didn't exist mm. or they're uh, satisfying a need that isn't out there. So there's an enormous creative, um, you know, energy that goes into that. In fact, I, I'm not sure if you watched the, 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 the Netflix series on Bill Gates. That's on my list. I cannot wait. So, you know, um, you know, inside Bill's mind. But, you know, here's a guy who's 
you know, made serious, serious money. I mean, you know, in his heyday when people were being negative, he was being described as a Rockefeller of the of the 90s. But, you know, he's put his mind to, you know, trying to fix and cure, mm. eradicate polio, right? Mm. Um, these guys, and, and please, I'm not suggesting I'm in that realm. All I'm saying is guys who are entrepreneurial tend to never stop their brains. Mm. So it, at some point it isn't. There's a difference between an entrepreneur and a focused wealth creator. So I tend to think of wealth creators, um, guys in the banking space, for example, who don't really make anything but put together instruments to generate more wealth or what they refer to as economic rent. These guys aren't necessarily creative. They're the truest or purest form of capitalism. Mm -hmm. But entrepreneurs tend to love what they're doing and a byproduct of that is they tend to make money or lots of money or more money, but then they tend to use that money to do different things. For example, the guys from Atlassian, who's I don't know. He's that's a tech company and they started in their garage and I think the last they were worth thirty billion dollars each. Oh, wow. And he's a echo warrior, so he's using his yeah, wealth okay. as a platform to um, help. help and and send a message to politicians about the things that matter to him. So what I'm saying is if you're like oh and the best one that everyone knows is Patagonia, right? Mm. So yeah. Great. So okay, so I love that you're basically saying they're doing the one thing and I've heard you talk about entrepreneurs almost being almost like a an athlete where you've got this goal and it's like the blinkers are on and you're training, you know, 50 weeks of the year, you're working your ass off basically and nothing else really matters. And it's like same when you've got a business goal. And that's where I want to go back to when you were 21 years old, yep. 1993, caffeine was born. Can yep. you take us through what caffeine was? And- yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, I've spoken about this a bit and, and some people tend to um, – compartmentalize me or, or put me in a box about, you know, or make assumptions rather about my past and where I came from. And often people assume that there was family money and, you know, I went to the right schools and and I, I allowed some of those assumptions to to be made because, you know, I went to the uni- University of Melbourne Law School and it was just much easier for those assumptions to be made. But the truth is we um, had a pretty humble beginning like most immigrants or migrants, migrants into Australia and at one point there was 12 of us living in a two-bedroom yeah. home. So I... Um, and you were, how old were you at this point? Like six? six? Yeah. yeah. And I had, um, and I remember Robert Benini gave a speech once and, and it stayed with me forever and I think it was when he won an Oscar or one of the film awards and he said, my parents gave me the best gift of all, they gave me poverty. Yeah. And so for me, I had to sort of hustle my way out of there, right? And did you see your dad's pay slip or something and you were 13 and your pay slip and your dad's pay slip? Yes, I was, I was earning more money than my father. I was waitering three nights a week and with tips I was earning more money than him net. So um, it wasn't a difficult leap for someone who um, uh, to make the connection that being poor sucked and I needed to hustle my way out of it. So I guess I don't know whether being entrepreneurial was DNA or socially constructed, but I knew that uh, it felt good to me um, to be able to afford things that weren't afforded to me by earning money. And so that's what I did. So what I love is you're at Melbourne Uni, at law school, you're living in, uh, didn't you have like something like seven, you're living in a share home? Yeah. So there like seven of you? Actually, we were living in Park Street, Brunswick, which, yeah. which is very cool now, in a, in a church, in a house owned by the church. And it was seven rooms and it was massive stables. And at some points there'd be 12 people living there. And I think the weekly rent was $69 each or $70 wow. each. And the kitty was like 15 bucks. <laughs> and I bought an old um, 
the uh, posty bike, you know, yeah. Honda posty yeah. bike, the red ones from one of those auction houses for 150 bucks. And I used to ride that around. Amazing. Um, everywhere, over the, um, the Westgate Bridge, for example, which is not a very good place to ride a posty bike. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I opened my first cafe mm-hmm. at the University of Melbourne called Caffeine, and then my life changed. And you were 21 at this stage. Yeah, I may have even been 20. Oh, I just remember, I remember being in this house sharing environment and then we opened the cafe and just made a lot of money. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is nuts. So I moved into the Rockman's Regency mm-hmm. Hotel, which is now the Marriott, I think. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Irvin Rockman owned that hotel and it's where the musos chose to stay when they came to Melbourne. So every night was a party yeah. and we were living at the, at the Rockman and uh, getting room service. It was very cool. It all happened in about 12 months. And by the time you graduated, fast forward, how many cafes did you have at that stage? Yeah, so lots. So what happened was I didn't realise I was in the tertiary space. So we beca- I became the, I mean, in fact, some of my competitors today used to make fun of me back then calling me the university king. We <laughs> opened up um, I think 15, 16, 17 or something cafes across a number of tertiary. Wow. So we, we owned the tertiary landscape. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. Okay. So to me this says that there's something integral within your brain or your heart that is separating you from the average human being, like there's some like genius thing going on. And I've heard you talk about having a high-risk profile. Can you explain that? Sure. So um, the I remember when, you know, uh, I can't even, time's going to blur for me, but it may have been 20 years ago. Um, you know, reading self-help books and management books and, you know, um, anything, get my hands on. When I was, because, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer and did my law degree, I'm a kind of speed reader. So I just consumed 12 books a week for a long time. And sometimes I'd read some dumb books and, um, you know, or anything anyone gave me. One of the books that someone gave me was um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, and in that um and, and what I remember from that book was, uh, and it wasn't necessarily a good book. It was just there was a, there was a di- di- diagram in that book where it talked about the, um, you know, what it takes to have freedom from being t- shackled to finances, and mm-hmm. it was a left quadrant and the white right quadrant. And in, anyway, in that description, and you know, if if your listeners can be bothered, grab a copy or Google it mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, and what I one of the analysis I discovered was that when you ask people. Um, what distinguishes employees, self-employed business mm. people and investors is um, employees, when you ask them what they need or what they want, they tend to ask for things like what are my holiday pay mm. and you know, how much leave do I get and what's my loading and that yeah. kind of question. And um, you know, uh, self-employed people tend to say things like, oh, well, I'm the only person who can do this. Um, and so you think, well, if you're the only person you can do this, you're stuck in that. Mm. So then it's like a full-time job, but you're paying yourself. And then business people tend to say things like, I'm looking for a you know, general manager or someone who's mm-hmm. really good online. Or, and investors tend to talk about rates of returns. And that, that's the ultimate unshackling from finances. And in that process, you work out people's risk profiles. So some people are willing to punt the family farm and other people are not willing to punt a mm-hmm. dollar. I punted everything all the time. And, oh yeah, but it was kind of easy for me because I didn't have much to start with. So, um, so it was just like I never had this anyway. So whatever. And so when I started in business, every deal we did was family farm, you know, because yeah. it was just like, and and because early on, every time, every year we would celebrate the 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 harvest. I guess if you want, if I can use that word, um, I decided that this may never last. So we should enjoy the moment. And every year we started, you know, living. 
the, living the dream. Yeah. And we kept that going right through to 47. So every year we allocate some resources and some time to make sure that we tick off the bucket list. So I've... I love what you just said then and and I've learned so much off you and I know we've had many a long meetings in your office where I'm like, okay, this thing's happened. Can you help me through it? And you've always, we're both Virgos, am I correct in yeah, saying yeah. that? Yeah, I, I think I'm a cuspian Virgo, Libra, 23rd, 23rd. Yeah, you yeah. are a bit pinch. I'm in, I'm jam in the middle of it and I was, would always, would always, <coughs> I'd always turn to you for a bit of guidance and you have this very, innate ability to, there's a few things I think that you're freaking amazing at, but you can compartmentalise and so, for example, to go back to like happy place, I'd get very attached to small ideas or I'd have I'd get quite emotional and it was my first kind of venture outside of writing books and you were like, you know, you're going to need to learn to let go and to kind of like not get emotional about certain things and I've heard you speak about people that are willing to take risks have this ability to kind of compartmentalize or take a big risk and still sleep at night yeah <clears throat> so I think that I think the uh, I think a distinction that can be made and not always I think you can be an artist and an entrepreneur and um, I think I'm not qualified to make comments about musicians but I guess a stones uh, are an example of artists and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the stone brand is pretty massive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the difference between an artist and an entrepreneur, uh, and they can overlap, as I've said, artists tend to hold on to every single detail. Mm. So if you want to be the world's best violinist or um, you know um, trumpet player or guitar player, if you mm-hmm. want to be Hendrix, you've got to play all the time at all costs, right? Um, and, you know, someone I love dearly and is a friend is uh, um, um, the Dan Hunter from Bray. Okay. Um, that restaurant wins mm-hmm. awards at the time. Mm-hmm. He's, he's crazy committed to detail. He's an artist. Um, probably, probably, and, and those kind of artists um, aren't necessarily entrepreneurial or they can be though, right? So for me, um, uh, I, I find that I compartmentalise my life mm-hmm. and if I didn't compartmentalise my life, I couldn't function. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I mean my life in its entirety, not just business. So if we do something that doesn't work out, um, well, I compartmentalise that and I have a view of accelerating it failing so I fail fast and get rid of it and just get on with it. Um, and some people who put their life and heart into it like you did with uh, Happy Place mm-hmm. um, won't change the detail um, until you get, you know, you, you've got to give it everything, 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 which is lovely. Um, it's just not how my mind works. No, and I think that one is the long-term game and one is like getting caught in the... No, but I mean, I don't want to discount the getting caught up because, as I say, some of the guys who get caught up end up having some tremendous results. Mm. Uh, it's just a different journey, and um, I I don't know whether it's Feng Shui, I don't know whether it's you know energy or whether it's just bad luck or locations. But some, for example, some sites never work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who goes into there. There's plenty of sites in Melbourne. There's a, a few in Chapel, a few in South Yarra, for example. Over 30 years, I've seen 30 businesses go into them mm. and 30 businesses fail. I mean, that site's got to be cursed, right? Mm-hmm. It's a cursed site. So <laughs> you, can, you can talk about feng shui or you can talk about being cursed or you can, but something's fucked about that site. Totally. And so um, if you get one of those, for example, you just got to let go. Yeah. Because otherwise you're going to drive yourself crazy. Totally. So at the moment, we've kind of been talking about, I guess, your little nuggets, right? I want to know about when things fucked up. Yep. So 
I imagine, I remember one day I was coming to see you and you said, I'm going to walk you downstairs. You know how your office is upstairs? You walk me downstairs and you said, Lola, people have a perception of you and they're going to want to take advantage of you. Correct. And I and it was it stuck with me because I'm a bit of a giver and I'm like and I give people I'm a bit naive I'd say or I have well, less been. so now yeah probably less so now uh, after a couple of years with me yeah. <laughs> but when has can you share any times when people have taken advantage of you when you've had all your heart in it or you've you've given your all to something so you know um uh, I anticipated that you might ask me uh, questions uh, about failings because um you know that's very interesting, actually, because you learn from your failings, mm. and and you know, I just remember, um, and uh, you know, I was in, I was kind of in awe of Branson for a while, mm-hmm. and um, he's had lots of failings yeah. that no one ever talks about. They always talk about you know all the cool stuff, mm. um, but there's been lots of dumb things that he's done, and so we've all had lots of failings, mm. and um, and so if I was to choose some failings to talk about, because I've had more than three, yeah. I've had ton, tons of failings. Um, I guess I want to talk about a personal failing first, which is not business, but it is a failing. I mean, my um, first marriage, mm-hmm. you know, I'm saddened that that didn't, uh, didn't work out mm-hmm. and I'd put a fair bit into that. And, and um, you know, I won't, you know, I, I talk in terms of contributory, neg- contributory negligence mm-hmm. as a lawyer, so who's responsible for what. So I won't take 100% responsibility for that, but, um, you know, that's a failing, right? And that failing came about f- through a number of reasons, but really it came about through being com- completely committed to my business mm-hmm. um, and um, and not investing in the signs when I, when I should have seen them, for example. So failings can happen in lots of ways, but in terms of business, I mean, I want to talk about a um, early on failing, no one knows, I've never spoken about it, but now that I thought about it, it's pretty funny. When I was 13 or 14, I um, decided that I was going to make cassata ice cream. Mm-hmm. I guess we used to, I used to make it at home for the family and it was quite delicious. So uh, what's cassata ice cream? So it's like a, a, a Sicilian or Neapolitan dessert, um, like a semi-freddo. There's lots of versions of it, um, but, you know, like a restaurant here in Melbourne, Stokey does a flaming version. Of okay. Like, yeah, like the flaming bombalesca. Yeah. And um, anyway, I made this beautiful product. I was really excited by it, you know, and I started selling it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what I didn't consider was transport because I was 13 or 14 and transporting ice cream probably needed to be refrigerated. Yes. Um, so, of course, by the time I dropped off my first batch, it was more like a, a thick shake than, yes. a, than an ice cream. And, uh, of course, all that money that I invested as a kid all went down the, all went down the toilet. But So I've had plenty of those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've also... <laughs> I've also, um, as I got older, I um, I've had done biz- business with partners who have uh, not not been aligned with uh, my uh, values mm-hmm. and um, you know done some things which have, um, have been a security safety breach for me, and then I've had to unwind myself from those own relationships, mm-hmm. and often. In the unwinding process, the easiest way to unwind without, um, you know, litigation is to take on the responsibility of cleaning up the mess. So if you think of it as an oil spill, mm-hmm. um, then I'm left with paying the cost of cleaning up the oil spill. And, um, you know, for me, uh, uh, one of the um, relationships that came undone early on was we opened St. Helene, London in 2010. I went. All right. Yeah. How was it? 
It was pretty awesome. Thanks. <laughs> and we opened in 2010, um, which for those listening who uh, are young um, will know that London 2010 had like mammoth coffee and that's about it. And no, that's not entirely true. We had a couple of Kiwi outfits as well that were pretty good and we opened a proper micro roastery mm. um, and nailed it. And anyway, uh, it Without discussing the details of that, because there was some um, you know, confidentiality agreements signed mm-hmm. at the time, but that ended up in a mess. Um, and I had made assumptions about the people involved, about their moral character, and and bits and pieces. And anyway, I ended up having to unwind what was meant to be my billboard for expanding Sonali into Europe. Uh, have you ever taken revenge? Oh, no, I don't. I'm not sure that I do revenge. I think it's a lot of energy in revenge. I know, but the reason why I ask you this is when you quit the law firm, I think you might have written an email like highlighting the people that oh, the dingoes to you. Yeah, yeah. So, but that, that, <laughs> that wasn't revenge. That was kind of like so calling people out. Yeah, calling people out for poor <laughs> behaviour. So when I um, so when I resigned from the law firm that I was working at, um, there were a couple of dingoes who. <laughs> Back then, um, and I'm sure it's still the case now for law kids, I feel sorry for them actually. We speak about fair work but professionals in junior roles get abused mm-hmm. both in terms of hours and just you know, verbal bashings. And I um, called out the dinger. So, you know, I sent a global uh, email to everyone who worked at the firm thanking those who'd mentored me through the program and calling out the dingoes uh, <laughs> with rather nasty uh, language uh, and... And I had my little box in my hip ready to walk out as soon as I pressed send, but then I stuck around for a little bit to grab some of the replies and print them. And the replies, you know, varied from you fucking legend, I can't (laughs) believe you said that, to you've just blown up your career forever um, kind of emails. And Mm -hmm. I knew that I'd blown up my career forever, but that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that I couldn't get back into law so that I had to make business work. Wow. I love that, by the way. Also, one thing I just, I don't want to... Forget you've mentioned it about two or three times already. Failing fast, yeah. Is that like okay? You can see something's not going right. Rather than sitting in the mud, you're kind of like I can see this problem's about to happen. So, so you know, um, when you're a, a genuine startup entrepreneur, right? And and I, so I should just try choose my words carefully. Putting tech stocks in a silo because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, tech stocks can lose billions of dollars every year and still keep raising billions of dollars. And as a guy who's brought up on cash flow being king or cash flow being the liquidity, uh, cash flow being the bloodline of your business, to me, tech stocks, the way they, the valuations, I've, I'm still yet to understand them, right? So mm-hmm. how can something lose $6 billion for you and, and then raise another $10 billion, right? So for me, we needed the, Cash coming in to pay for bills, and yeah. um, and if we couldn't pay for bills, we were dead, dead in the water, and and that's one of the things I said. I said early on in my career, you know, profit is theoretical, uh, cash is real. Mm-hmm. So you can make all the profit in the world, but if you're not getting paid, you're kind of screwed, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, for me, failing fast was sort of born out of a necessity because if I didn't fail fast, I'd be burning through the cash that I had, and then I'd be. Screwed. Yeah. So yeah, I tend to um, if if I think something doesn't have legs, um, and we've given it a shot and given it a good shot, I blow it up, and I blow it up, you know, in a compartmentalized, um, unemotional, non-emotional, uh, disheartened way. 
And to just share really like honestly and vulnerably here, I haven't ever spoken about this, but when the call was my own happy place, you called me in, you gave, gave me a call and you were like, Lols, can you come in? And I sat down and you were like, this is not working for us right now for where you want to go and for where we want to go. Yeah. And I had a moment and then you took me out to dinner. Do you yeah. remember? Yeah, and I do. And we had a beer, we went out for dinner and <clears throat> it was a beautiful lesson in knowing when to let go. I think I still took two more weeks to go, can I think about it? Yeah, yeah. No, you did. And, and, and that's right. I mean, you know, and that was a beautiful project. In fact, I drove past that. I drive past Happy Place, which is now called something else, um, you know, often because I've got Clement Coffee next door. And it's such a beautiful store. It is. I think that was, um, was that uh, Fionn Lynch did yes, that, right? Fionn yes. Lynch and their office did that store. Beautiful store. I think it was an excellent addition and contribution to the market. And, um, you know, I think it will be forever beautiful being mm. the bookends of that gate, gateway into the market. And I think the product was great. Um, and the crystal giving was great. All of it was great. I think um, we may have been slightly too early on the non-dairy um, and, <laughs> and your uncompromising desire to make everything perfect yeah. meant, it meant our cost of goods were the same price yeah. as our retail. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it, was a, it was a beautiful project. But, you know, um, for us, we, we're a coffee business primarily or a, a creative agency selling coffee, as I like to say, and, um, you know, we sell 17 tonnes of coffee a week um, and in in context uh, was a distraction for our main business. Uh, totally, and I can in hindsight I can absolutely see that so clearly without feeling emotive, but Sal has definitely seen me have a few tears in his office. Tears, tears are good. Uh, okay, so one thing I've loved as I've researched you, so I've always known you as kind of this go-getter. Ever since literally I reckon 10 years ago you got me running like lullaberry smoothies on your St. Ali menu. Correct. Which is still there today. Yeah, is it still? It oh, still great. is. Awesome. Yeah. Which, one, which one is it? It's like a berry one. Nice, it's nice. It's called the lullaberry smoothie, so you're amazing. Thank you. Good, perfect. Uh, but the more that I've, one, got to know you and two, researched you, you're willing to share this um this side of you that I've never heard shared before. So I've heard you speak openly and you've done it to me as well about anxiety and having a panic attack. Yeah. And you yeah. were 33 when you had your first panic attack, is that Yeah, right? so panic attacks, I, I um, let's talk about those because they're fun now. I said I don't have them anymore but um, I can think about the past and have a, a bit of a laugh about it because mm. my first panic attack, I don't know if I was 30 or 33 or whatever, but yeah. I was younger, much younger. Some people would say young. And I actually thought I was having a heart attack. Yeah. You know, like it, it feels yeah. it feels like a heart attack. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've never had a heart attack, touch wood. I had my but, first one at 33 and I I had to lean. I was standing up and I couldn't stand up anymore. I thought I was having a heart attack. Yeah. So then I, I drove myself to, I think it was Monash, so Monash Hospital and emergency department. And, you know, it was like that scene out of Analyze This with Robert De Niro where the, you know, triage doctor came and said, great news, Miss Malatesta. Uh, it was a panic attack. And, I'm like, and I was like, I don't have panic attacks. What are you talking about panic attacks? You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, I had um, I had three of them. And then after the third one, I went and got therapy. And um, and sitting in my, uh, you know, therapy, and I went and got therapy. I was forced to get, well, I was encouraged to get therapy by my GP and my then uh, wife. And I remember sitting in silence in the first um, a therapeutic session with my therapist and she'd stare at me and I'd stare at her and she'd smile and I'd smile and she'd say, what are you thinking? And I'd be like, nothing. And she's like, why are you here? Because you know, I've been forced to be here, that kind of thing. 
And then super she, resistant. And then um, she said, "This is a safe room. You can say anything you're thinking." And I won't share what I, th- I said to her because it was, uh, you know, it's in the confines of a, you know, um, a session. But also, it was quite mean, and I made some comments about her and what I was thinking. And then it opened up a, a world of pain and tears for me. And I did 13 weeks of CBT and or CBT, or whatever it's What's called, Co- cognitive behavioural therapy. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you know, worked through my anxiety, panic attacks. But then I kept the. But then I kept the therapy sessions going mm. for a long time, like seven years, because I just loved them, and that's, yeah. I saw them as an opportunity to vent and dump. And um, and so I went from being a you know a non-believer to a strong advocate of of therapy and good therapy. And um, you know, I am, as you say, fairly open uh, about these things. I don't, mm. I, yeah, you know, human failings or they got to be celebrated. You know, it's yeah. like um, you know, this sort of. Talking about pregnancies, for example, when when I've had four children and we always talk about being pregnant and there's a sort of taboo about talking about being pregnant until you're 13 weeks and then until you've had the 21-week scan and stuff like that. And uh, I've always been like, well, you know, these things are real and they happen and and there's no need to have any attachment to them. They just are what they are. So I had panic attacks. Okay, so... So the panic attacks would align with when. So so I don't know what triggered them. Due. No, so I, look through through work we um through the work that I did through therapy, I a couple of things happened to me. One as a kid, I was seven and had an asthma attack that was substantial. So um, they thought they lost me. Mm-hmm. Um, seven years is like a really interesting spiritual number too. Okay, I didn't know that, and yeah. that was, and I I remember that like. You know, like I had it yesterday, and I was a prem baby. And mm-hmm. then um, when I was eighteen or nineteen, I was locked in a lift for three hours. Um, mm. And that were three distinctive memories for me of not being able to breathe. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't know if you believe in talk therapy or whatever. You can say they had a contributing mm-hmm. um, f- uh, a contribution, made a contribution to my panic attacks. But it tended to happen. My father died, um, and I, I processed that death quite mechanically. Were you close? Very. And I love him and I still miss him. And it was a horrible death. It was gastric cancer and it took a, you know, a couple of years. And my brother and mother fell apart through that process. Mm-hmm. So I held it together and, as I said, processed that death mechanically as in, you know, put on a phenomenal funeral and, and I didn't cry much. But then mm-hmm. two years later I was sitting, um, not sure why I was there actually, but I was sitting on the fence of St. Patrick's Cathedral mm-hmm. and I looked up and I saw the Peter Mac logo and I burst into tears really? uh, for hours. And um, and that was probably the first time that I processed mm. his death. So it's probably something to do with repressed feelings. But as I say, we're you know we've got. To, I, I I've stopped striving for perfection. I, I said just continual improvement because mm. you know perfection's a fleeting moment. So we've just got to keep working at it, right? Whatever we're doing. Totally. I'm so glad you shared about therapy. I'm very very pro it. I I go once a week and I and I get hypnotherapy, the works, and I do it because I want to be the best I can be. And it's like gym for your brain. Yeah. Like you're on a keto diet, looking great, by the way. Thank you. We can talk about keto. I love keto. <laughs> and also, uh, you know, you train six days a week, correct? I do. Yeah. And then with the brain is like the king of it all. And so I see therapy as like, well, my, like my therapist says, let's just get you bulletproof. Yeah, great. And it, and I see it as like a non-negotiable for my overall like health and yeah. Well, re- preservation and regeneration. Um, mm. Those those words are critical for me. So I know as I've got older, you know, as you know too well, uh, we tend to get invited to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I uh, committed, if I went to all the things that I got invited to, it'd be two or three events a night, mm. seven days a week. 
I reckon you get invited to more than me, my friend. <laughs> oh, I reckon I go to one thing every two weeks now. Um, oh. So I choose I choose things I really want to go to because I can't give myself anymore. I've got to preserve and regenerate and that time happens at home for me with the family and people I love and reading and you know, being quiet. Could it also be though you have done all this work on yourself, you've grown wiser and like as great as events are, a lot of them are empty and full of dingoes and people that probably want something from you. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that word. I like dingoes. because you know I, who I've I got, stole it off? I've got another word that's not appropriate. <laughs> I stole it off your business partner, Locke, Locke Lamont. Oh, does he say dingoes? He taught me dingoes. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> I love dingoes. And to the point now I've got a jumper that says don't be a dingo. Oh, nice. Yeah. Did you, where'd that jumper come from? I gave a talk and they sent it to me after I'd said it on stage. I'm, I'm going I'm to take that word. It's a good one. No dingoes. But you know what I mean, right? Yeah. So you've got you, – you get invited to everything because you're like an it guy of Melbourne. You're a – we call them – in Sydney people call them Melbourne celebrities, celebrities, which you probably hate that word, but you mm. are a Melbourne celebrity. And, you know, so you probably get invited to everything. But I don't know about you. Do you sometimes walk away from events and you're like – why did I go to that? Five people just asked for like wanted things from me, and it and that can be really especially because you care and you are. I believe that you are quite sensitive deep down, and you yeah. have a very soft heart. And I think that if you would love to help everybody, if you could, but it, if you just keep giving to people, it's going to come at a cost. And I think that those events, there are some awesome ones, but there are also some ones that I'm like, why did I just go to that? And I'll feel quite empty and a bit down after. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. That's true, a little bit. And um, I have been blessed by, uh, and so I want to speak positively about the power of media and PR. And yeah. And, and so I mean, I, for whatever reason, you know, the I've, they've taken a liking to the things I've got to say and do, and so and they've helped me build my business. So I'm forever grateful. Um, but as sort of snippets of people's lives get distilled into, you know, um, Insta shots and gram, you know, the gram life, of which I'm also guilty. I tend to, I hope that I make most of my grams as authentic as possible, and I don't um, trying. I don't really capture, um, you know, bragging gram shots. But as I, I've you know, I'll be at an event and I'll watch 20 people taking photographs of themselves in front of the media wall continuously all night and, and no one seems to be present in the moment. No. Uh, and so I find myself um, wondering what I'm doing there because yeah. uh, I might as well just watch it on the ground from home. Yeah, um, totally, totally. And so unless someone's, you know, wanting to be present. So for me I think, um, and, you know, I haven't got there yet, Lola, but learning how to be present all the time. Yeah, uh, is is the is a trick? I think you are very. You're one of those people that, although you have five things or fifteen things going on at once, when you're with someone like right now, or if I visit you in your office, you're there. And you also notice, like, if I come up to see someone else in your office, you'll be like, "Come in, give me a hug, connect," and then you'll go on about what you're doing. You're very good at connecting with other humans. I think that's definitely an attribute of yours. Thank you. Maybe humans that I like. Hey, <laughs> I'll take that. Um, I've heard you describe yourself as an architect of my own destiny. Is that something that you've learnt from, because I know you were really close with your mum, your amazing mama bear. Yeah. Or is that like So mum was, uh, was a strong, strong woman. Um, I think we had a our household was more matriarch than a mm-hmm. than patriarch. Um, That's common with Italian families. Yeah, uh, well, it can be, yeah. I mean, mama, mama bears always, um, you know, put on a pedestal, but sometimes it's a patriarchal household. Mm-hmm. But um, mum, mum ran the house. Uh, mum ran the finances, and 
Um, and can you hear my baby on the yeah. microphone? That's okay. That's so cute. Okay. Added. Um, and uh, but what mum what mum gave me more than uh, you know I can never repay her was a sense of self belief. Mm. Um, that was you know uh, uh, Elon Musk in its kind of stratospheric mm. you know craziness because I remember her saying to me if I wanted to be I could be the president of the United States of America. <laughs> And obviously, as I grew up, I realised that would be impossible because I need to be an American citizen, uh, for starters. Um, but I grew up thinking that I had no limitations, even mm. though we were seriously limited from a resource perspective. Um, so I actually believed that I could be the president of the United States of America right through my childhood. You know, until I made the connection, the legal connection that I couldn't. Um, not not that I want. Just to be really clear, not that I wanted to be. I'm just saying. So I never thought that I wouldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. Mm. And, and you know, and I feel like I've achieved those things. How did your mum take it when you were like, yo, I'm going to give up being a lawyer and I'm going to open yeah. a coffee so, shop? So, you know, the it's Italian culture and, and perhaps, you know, well, other cultures, but, you know, I feel like we're aligned to Chinese cultures, tiger mums and Jewish cultures and, and there's always those jokes about, you know, see the man, so when the president gives a speech and, and the mum says, see my son on the stage there, he's a doctor, um, yeah. and they're talking about the brother. So in, in Italian families, you know, number one would probably be being a priest. Yeah, um, And number two and three would be doctor and lawyer. Yeah, of course. So uh, I feel like I got my law degree and became a lawyer to tick a box for my mum. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to say that it was a very useful degree. I loved my time at the University of Melbourne and I've learned heaps. So, you know, all power to people who you study law, but it wasn't a career for me. Mm-hmm. Um Probably because I wasn't you know, smart enough to be a really awesome lawyer, but um, when I went home and told my mother that I, uh, you know, um, was leaving the law, it was probably more heartbreaking for her than me getting divorced. Um, mm. You know, because uh, you know, in our culture, all my relatives refer to me by title. Yes, uh, you know, Signora Avocato, so Mister Lawyer, and yeah. so it was a big deal. But um, and so my mum would still call me the lawyer. Uh, 20 years after my, you know, left the law. So, yeah, she was pretty heartbroken. Was she, when she saw the success of St. Ali? Uh, um, Sal's just shutting the door so we have beautiful sound in here. So, so yeah, no, Did that I mean, switch because no, of the really. self-belief thing, though? Uh, no, no, mum, I think mum would have still preferred for me to be a lawyer than a, <laughs> than a, than a business guy. Um, she was never really... Um, Tied up into you know money at all. I mean, we we grew all our own veggies. Um, you know, I, I, this may or may not be true for the purposes of recording, but we used to, you know, uh, kill our own pigs and chickens. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, we ate from the ground in a suburb in Melbourne, and so Oakley, right? Yeah. So there was no there was no need for money really. I mean, Mum made everything and cooked everything, and so we we ate really well. I remember eating delicious things growing up, but. We never had the money, so money, money, didn't, money wasn't a motivator for my mother. Yes, um, yeah, I guess uh, uh, you might say uh, we say uh, bella figura um, or bruta figura. So you know, a public face, you know, was important. So, really? so um, you know, honouring the family name, marrying well, becoming you know the best person you can be, more so than making money. I mean, making yeah. money was kind of like you know, whatever. Yeah, totally. So my boyfriend's Italian, and. Yeah. He is the first Australian, but right. like, so I'm learning so much. And everything's pickled, everything's made at home, on site. And it's, yeah. it's, I mean, there's some beauty, it's, it's very beautiful culture. 
Thanks. I mean, I got to tell you, since I've um, since I've been on keto, it's really funny because I cook with pork lard, for example, yeah. um, which is what I was brought up with. But for a long time, we sort of let go in this household of cooking with fat because we thought, oh, fat can't be good for yeah. you. But of course, since I've become a keto advocate, all we cook with is, yeah, totally. and it's bloody delicious. Oh, and so good for you. And so good for you. I think there's a stigma. Uh, one thing before. Uh, just one more thing about your childhood and, like, I don't know if you remember this, you've told me stories of, like, this is probably more the teeny kind of years but it was kind of rougher for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, you can. (laughs) Little smiles just crept up on sales. No, we can go there. Um, I Because Robbie used to tell me stories as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, people who meet me today, would have no idea um, that we had a, a fairly rough past. Um, you know, that's my joke in meetings. I always, when people tell me they they, they do boxer size or whatever, I say I always ask, "How many street fights do you have?" Yeah, and often uh, people say none, and I'm like, no street fights, no cred. Yeah. You know, and we I went to a pretty tough school, uh, which I probably won't mention here, and it, it was fights every day. Yeah, um, and um, I'm not a big guy. Uh, um, so, you know, I needed to learn how to fight and I needed to learn how to surround myself with people that could fight. Yeah. Um, and so um, I did that. And if I look back at my friendship circles from those days, a lot of those guys have um, unfortunately um, done some time and got themselves in a spot of bother. And I remember being 15 and making the connection that I didn't want that life. And I remember sitting down with a bunch of friends and kind of divorcing them, but with yeah. love. And I was like, I, I can't do this. I'm out. And um, so I took I took a very conscious path to do the right thing. And yeah, I was brought up in a household um, back then where my brother, um, you know, would uh, at the drop of a hat fly off his handle and get into a full street brawl. And it was generally around racist comments slurred his way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a trigger for him. Um, I was fortunate not to have those racist comments, um, maybe because I look whiter than I do Italian, I don't know. Mm. Um, uh, but I also wasn't triggered by them. So yeah. I, 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 you know, if people called me a wog, I'd be like, oh, whatever. Mm. Um, but he was very triggered. So it was a household and you know, my dad was iron fist. I mean, if we answered back, we got hit. You know, mm-hmm. um, It was a tough household. And so yeah, it was a long way from that. God, I live in a nice gated community now. It's yeah. quite <laughs> Um, one more failure-ish kind of question or challenge-ish question. In, when you went, so you obviously had success reasonably young. 21 is quite a young age to yeah. hit kind of like big money and, you know, moving to live in the city and things like that. Um, was partying ever something that was on the cards and kind of like being a bit yeah. reckless with your life? Of course. we. Um, I think we mentioned a character on the show already but, yeah, and, you know, I would uh, – I think it would be fair to say that if I said I reckon I've partied for more than this, but uh, but uh, you know, partied intensely uh, yeah. for ten years. Yeah, um, uh, I would say uh, that would be accurate. I remember coming out of the races one year. <laughs> I have uh, done the races with you, by the way. Yeah, I came. You know, and I was, uh, you know, pretty pretty full and uh, and full of myself. But I needed to actually, I needed to take a wee, and for whatever reason. <laughs> For whatever reason, every toilet I went to was locked mm-hmm. or being cleaned, and I said to Joanne, "I've just, I've just got a wee. I've just got a wee. I'm going <laughs> to wee myself like it's an emergency." And so it was the bowling club outside Flemington Racecourse, and I just, uh, you know, went 
again, to town. I went to town on the fence of the bowling club outside Flemington Racecourse. You know, I'm like a, not a proud moment. And this, I heard sirens. And I was midway, midstream, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> but I still had to keep weighing. Of I was, course, it started. So I started. But then I managed to somehow um, midstream stop my wee, turn around and pretend like nothing had happened. Um, uh, right? and that would have been hard. Yeah, I know. But of course, because I used to be a lawyer, I sobered up pretty quickly. And all I could think of was, it's got to be an offence. It's got to be an offence. I've, I've committed yeah, a crime. of course. Uh, this is no good. So my first phone call before the police officers walked towards me was to a friend of mine who's a QC. And I remember him saying, just tell him it was an emergency. Just tell him it's an emergency. That's a defence. And so as they asked me questions, I said, it's an emergency. It's an emergency. I had to go as an emergency. It's an emergency. So that wasn't. But that, <laughs> And you got off scot-free? Scot, well, yeah, scot-free. Yeah. So that was <laughs> that was um, one of many, of which I won't share anymore on this show, of those, that, that period <laughs> Uh, where, Thank you for divulging. Where, where I could have <laughs> found myself in a spot of bother, my life could have gone in a different direction. But this is why I say, um, I'm really. I think once I hit forty, I was just uh, from forty onwards. It's been, you know, Yoda principles. Totally wisdom principles. But it's nice that you share them as well because it's nice to know that you can still have little kind of hurdles along the way. Oh, plenty which hurdles. Is the premise of this. In fact, one of the things I say to um, my uh, wife at the moment is, you know, the kids have to make their own path, and we shouldn't remove too many rocks. Mm. Um, they need to move their own rocks to make yeah. their own path because moving the rocks is what teaches you how to move the rocks to start with, right? So I love that. I think the hurdle. I think the hurdles are important. So long as you know, and this is my dream for my own children. So long as nothing's, as long as you don't end up having you know drink driving deaths or you know mm. those really hardcore incidences, yeah. I think some you know falling in potholes along the way is pretty handy. I love it. Okay, so just to wrap up, I've heard you describe um, successful people or entrepreneurs as anyone that is willing to really commit. And you, is that would that be your advice for people that are listening to this that are like, okay, I've got this dream, I'm going to do the work, I'm willing to put anything in, I want, you know, is it is it that belief that your mum taught you or is it that single-minded focused or is it, and I know you're at a stage now where you're like you've, you've got the resource and you've set yourself up to live more present and more balanced. But for people that are in that real like hustle, like really want to make a dream come true yeah. phase, what's your like take home? So, you know, I, I'm nervous to answer this question honestly, Lola, because we live in an environment uh, of tapering and balance and, um, you know, uh, sort of universal adherence to a bunch of principles. Mm-hmm. But the truth is from from where I sit and from what I've seen um, and, you know, and I even read an article in the Financial Review on the weekend about a particular CEO saying that uh, she um, has a very balanced work week and um, and so that's feel, I feel like that's the advice I need to give but it's actually not how I feel. What I feel is anybody who's succeeded in anything and let me just stretch out that definition. So if you're an an elite athlete or if you're a concert pianist or if you're, um, you know, a celebrated graffiti artist like Ian Strange or if you're um, all cause, you know, or if you're, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, EDMDJ like Avicii um, or uh, rest in peace or if um, whatever, generally these people 
are 1,000% committed to the task at hand at all costs. And uh, and I have been that person. And in some ways I still am that person. Totally. Even though I've got a much more relaxed demeanour, I'm still very, very committed to San Ali and it becoming you know, forever part of the social fabric of Melbourne and the world. And that commitment is, you know, un- non-relenting. Mm. So I mm. think being the partner of or the children of someone who's very committed to something is hard work. Um, but I also think that people that succeed in their chosen fields are 1,000% committed to that field. And so the so I don't think you can, unless you, you know, in Paris Hilton and have an inheritance or um, you just get fucking lucky, um, I think it's hard to succeed and be the best in your field unless you're committed to it all the time. Mm. So uh, to your listeners, if they want to succeed, you know, um, I mean, what's a polite way of saying balls deep? Uh, Amazing. <laughs> um, I don't know, like, you know, body, soul, mind deep um, yeah. or, you know, everything on the line. And I certainly... Balls deep is good. Balls deep. <laughs> and uh, and I recommend that behaviour um, as early as possible when um, you don't have as much to lose. So, you know, the moment you have an entrepreneurial flicker, 16, 15, 19, 20, you go hard and you go deep and um, hopefully it works and then, you know, you can start, you know, not going deep, deep, deep when you're 40 because, uh, you know, uh, you can start enjoying some of the fruits. Awesome. You're incredible. Thanks. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I know how busy you are. I think Absolute you're pleasure. on a flight tomorrow, aren't you, to the other side of the yeah, world? Yeah, flying to Italy tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. So <laughs> Amazing. Pretty, pretty excited. Thank you so much. You're wonderful. Thank you for having me, Lola. I appreciate it and love you very much. Love you. Bye. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lollaberry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and comment. And of course, spread the love. Spread the love.